Put your hands together for you. Come on. Thanks very much, Stevie. Uh, I'll be reading from 1 Samuel 25, verses 1 to 38. So get comfortable. Get ready to listen. I printed the sheets out because I tried reading it on my phone. I'm at that age where my arms are getting longer and longer. So, Chapter 25, 1 Samuel, verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel gathered for his funeral. They buried him at his house in Ramah. Then David moved down to the wilderness of Meon, or Moon. There was a wealthy man from Meon who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. This man's name was Nabal, and his wife, Abigail was a sensible and beautiful woman, but Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean in all his dealings. When David, David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent ten of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. I am told that it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them, and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your own men, and they will tell you this is true. So would you be kind to us, since we have come at a time of celebration? Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your friend David. David's young men gave this message to Nabal and David's name, and they waited for a reply. Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? Mm. So David's young men returned and told him what Nabal had said. Get your swords, was David's reply as he strapped on his own. Then 400 men started off with David and 200 remained behind to guard their equipment. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail and told her, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at them. These men have been very good to us and we never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and the sheep. You need to know this and figure out what to do, for there's going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He's so ill-tempered, no one can even talk to him. Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 2,000 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel, which I think is about 38 liters, of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes. She packed them on donkeys, and said to her servants, go on ahead, I will follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband, Nabal, what she was doing. As she was riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, she saw David and her men coming toward her, towards her. David had just been saying, a lot of good I had done to help this fellow. We protect his flocks in the wilderness, and nothing he owned was lost or stolen. But he has repaid me for evil for good. Paid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one man of this household is still alive tomorrow morning. 
He's a bit disgruntled. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked, wicked and evil-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never even saw the young men you sent. Now, my lord, as surely as the lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here's a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty for you are fighting the Lord's battles and you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. When the Lord has done all he promised and has made you lead of Israel, don't let this blemish be, this, be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. David replied to Abigail, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. For I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept me from hurting you, that if, I had not, if you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would be still alive tomorrow morning. And David accepted her present and told her, Return home in peace. I've heard what you said, we will not kill your husband. When Abigail arrived home, she found that Nabal was throwing a big party and was celebrating like a king. He was very drunk. So she didn't tell him anything about that, her meeting with David until dawn the next day. In the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him what happened and as a result, he had a stroke and he lay paralyzed on his bed like a stone and about 10 days later, the Lord struck him and he died. Good morning, everybody. We're talking this morning better than the mighty. Some of you may be familiar with that story, some less so. We're going to get familiar with it this morning. Good to see you all. We are talking about um, fools this morning. Nabal is a character in our study today and no one likes being insulted have you ever been insulted it's not nice is it no one likes being made a fool of and and our personalities as different as they are they will determine how we respond to insult because anger can wear many different faces some go silent but they, bitter, they harbor bitterness and resentment and they start to avoid that person or the business. Some fly off the handle into their rage. Some person, personality types respond by being smart or smart comments or trying to be smart. Occasionally, anger comes out with such force that results in hostile actions. But if we want to be mighty, 
if we want to achieve greatness, we must learn to become slow to anger and we must learn to rule our own spirit. Proverbs 16.32 on your sheet says, has anyone not got a handout? Hands up if you've not got a handout and you would like one. Okay, there's a few of the host team. Have you got any spare sheets? If you could just hand them out, please. Yeah, keep your hand up and there's somebody going round. 1632 says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Let that sink in for a second. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. That's countercultural. That's not what our society and culture teaches us. Slide number two, we're going to discover how to rule our spirit. Slide number two, please, Robert. That's great. Thank you. And uh, we're going to look at an incident in the life of David. David's biography is the longest of any Old Testament biography. And he, David is quoted more in the New Testament than any other Old Testament character. What's incredible about this incident that we've read in 1 Samuel 25 is that David for years, if you read the context and the backgrounds in the prior chapters, for years he's modeled patience. Remember Saul tried to spear him. Did he take revenge? In just the chapter before, David actually had Saul, who was the king and he was still king despite David having been anointed, Saul had been tra tracking down David for a long time and had been trying to kill him. And David had an opportunity when Saul went to relieve himself in a cave. There was David's perfect opportunity for revenge, for anger, to kill the man that was after his life. And yet, he just cut off the corner of his robe. And we learn that even that small act caused David to be conscious stricken on that occasion. But what's interesting is that David was able to rule his spirit. So for a long time, David was able to rule his spirit. He was able to be slow to anger when he faced injustice and hardship from someone that he respected and regarded as the Lord's anointed. He still had respect for Saul. He knew he was the anointed of the Lord. Yet, when he's insulted by a fool, he loses the plot completely. One of the great things about the Bible is it's real. And it tells the truth about human beings, their warts and all. It tells the ugliness of human character. It doesn't try to cover up. They didn't just omit that chapter of the Bible because David was doing really well. And isn't that the story of our lives? We do so well and then something just sets us off. You think you're doing so well, you've managed to do great and uh, control yourself and restrain yourself. And then just something happens and something manifests in your life. And you can't believe how you've just acted or behaved. He's insulted by a fool. He loses a plot. And there's a lesson that we can learn that right there, watch out for fools in your life. They may just have been sent to test you and to help you grow. A little bit of background to this chapter, that in those days, most of the people working in the fields were shepherds. 
They looked after flocks of sheep and, uh, um, and herds of the goats of the wealthy. And in this chapter, we have an example of an employer-employee conflict. And David's employee, and what we find out is David ends up planning to kill his boss. Um, you see, Saul was still king, but at this point, David had 600 guerrilla fighters. And they were behind the scenes fighting various wild tribes in the wilderness of Paran. And these fighters, while they were fighting the tribes, they also provided protection for the shepherds from the attack of wild tribes. So David's 600 men were acting as protection for the shepherds so that their sheep wouldn't get stolen. They wouldn't raid these wild tribes, the villages. And according to the customs of that day, at the time when the sheep were to be sheared, it was common for the owner of the animals, he would set aside a portion of the profit he had made that year and he would give it to those who had been protecting his shepherds while they were out in the fields. There was no written law saying it had to be done, but it was a way of showing gratitude for a job well done. So David and his 600 guerrilla fighters, they've been faithfully watching the flocks of a wealthy man named Nabal. It was sheep shearing time, and so David expected some payment for his men's careful protection of their flocks. But Nabal's a stingy man. He won't pay up. What we know about Nabal from the passage that you and read to you that he was rich, he was wealthy, he had money, lots of sheep, 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. His name means fool, and he lived as if there was no God. He was harsh, stubborn, and eviling in his dealings, and he was dishonest. Another character, which warrants a whole message on its own, and unfortunately I've not got time today to really focus on Abigail, but I would like to encourage maybe one of you ladies to do a study on her life because she comes out of one of the great heroes of the Old Testament. What we know about her is she was intelligent and beautiful and she was married to a fool. We know some of, <laughs> do you know someone like that? Yeah? Why do women do that? <laughs> Just because he had sheep and goats. Wish it was that easy, Gregory. <laughs> So, David's had well-trained 600 guerrilla fighters. They treated the shepherds well. They ensured that none of the flocks went missing. And in verse 16, it's described his men were like a wall of protection to us both night and day. So his men were like a wall of protection to Nabal's shepherds. They ensured that no, one was, uh, no, no flocks were stolen. But this foolish man, Nabal, he couldn't, he couldn't care less. And in verses 5 to 9, we begin to see the conflict unfold. Um, let's look at verse 5. David sent 10 young men, and David said to young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him, Shalom, 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 peace be to you. I hear you have shearers. Now your shearers, um, shepherds, have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. So he sends a kind and gracious greeting to Nabal. He asks for whatever Nabal, he doesn't demand, he doesn't tell him how much, he just asks for whatever he has to hand. He sent 10 men, that may indicate how much he expected to receive. 
perhaps enough to feed 600 men. That's a lot, we know from the curry night. Should have seen how much food there was. Um, but we get Nabal's reply in verse 10 and 11 of 1 Samuel 25. Nabal answered, Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Now, first thing you must know, everybody knew who David was. This is the insult of insult to David. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. What does that mean? Well, David was running and hiding from Saul. What are you going to do, little boy, if I don't give you anything? You're going to run and tell the king? <laughs> There's many servants hiding from their masters. I know you're hiding from Saul, and you can't do anything to me because if you demand from me, I might just tell Saul where you are. There's many servants running away from their masters these days. Shall I, 11, shall I take my bread and my water, my meat I've killed from my shearers and give it to men who I do not know who have come from? This is where things get hot. This is where things start to fly. Remember, this is David, the guy who is described as a man after God's heart. This is the man who months before refused to retaliate or fight back even when Saul was trying to put a, put a spear through him, when Saul was pursuing him. So far, David has modeled patience pretty well in his life. Maybe David and his men were a little bit hungry when the news came. Maybe they've got the fires lit. Maybe they can smell the lamb kebabs and the spices in their imagination, and they're just looking forward to the return of his ten men with this big feast. When he sees them coming empty-handed, and this is where his anger explodes. He goes absolutely nuts. The man after God's heart, the man who God said to Jesse, there must be one more man. None of these are the anointed ones. None of these are the man. The Lord doesn't look to the outward, experience, uh, outward appearance. He looks to the heart. There must be someone with a heart after my heart. The one that Samuel anointed David, the shepherd boy, the one who wrote all our Psalms, or the, the, who wrote in the Psalms, the one who modeled patience, the one who modeled a tender heart and conscience and, and, and cutting off Saul's robe. He goes nuts. One of the greatest men of God in the Bible loses the plot. And not just a little bit, he goes stark, raven, bonkers. People, be encouraged. Be encouraged. We're not perfect. We stumble and we fall. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't choose us and anoint us and use us. Things start to fly. Um, look at his verse 13 for a second. He says, David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. <laughs> 400 men strap on your sword. Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is to disregard my good name? I'm going to teach this Nabal, this fool, this idiot. Who does he think he is to insult me? I tell you what, I'll show him who has the power. 400 400 men. There's a saying which goes, you're killing a roach with a shotgun. Yeah, you do manage to kill the roach, but you blast a hole in the wall at the same time. 
is overkill. And David is going for serious overkill here. It's like some email replies, shotgun emails. Like some Facebook comments, shotgun comments. Like some responses on the telephone when, uh, when some salesperson tries to phone you and you're trying to cook the dinner or you're occupied. Shotgun replies. Now we know that they didn't put swords on to have a committee meeting. We see David's intention in verse 21 to 22 is that he's going to kill every single male. 21 and 22, it says, um, God so do to the enemies of David and more so if by morning I leave so much as one male of him who belongs to him. So it's clear, he was going to kill every single male because of an insult, because someone wouldn't pay. Look on your notes what Aaron Redpath, where's Kish, give me a wave Kish. This man, Alan Redpath, he wrote in a book called The Making of the Man of God about David. And he lectured Kish at university. Is that right, Kish? You sat under some of his lectures? Well, we're going to sit under one of his lessons here again this morning. Isn't that wonderful? David, David, what is wrong with you? Why, one of the most wonderful things we have learned about you recently is your patience with Saul. You learned to wait upon the Lord. You refused to lift your hand to touch the Lord's anointed, although he had been your um, enemy for many years. But now, look at you. Just look at you. Your restraint has gone to pieces, and a few insulting words from a fool of a man like Nabal has made you see red. David, what's the matter? I am justified in doing this, David would reply. When you're making that Facebook comment, I'm justified in doing that. When I'm sending that email, I'm justified. I've been made a fool of. I've been insulted. I'm a Christian, but I'm going to show them I'm not weak. I'm going to show them that they can't just walk all over me. David would reply, there is no reason why Nabal should treat me as he has. He has repaid all of my kindness with insults. I will show him he can't trifle with me. It is one thing to take it from Saul. Well, he's my superior at this point. But this sort of man, this high-handed individual must be taught a lesson. David's words reveal why he was so angry. He's been repaid evil for good. In verse 10, and I think David's pride was hurt. Nabal had said, who is David? And as I said earlier, everyone knew who David was. But it's when it's your good is returned with evil that you better watch out because that is when we start to see red that is when the rage, and your personality type will determine how you express that rage. That rage may be silence. That rage may be smartness. That rage may be just flowing off the handle. So we have a classic of a, a example here of a man being tested by a fool. I wonder if God set this up. I wonder if God allowed this just to test David a little further. You've passed the test with Saul. You've done great. But when you feel 
good has been repaid by evil, watch out because we're liable to lose the plot. I want to ask you, do you have any fools in your life? Nabal was described as a harsh and badly behaved person. Do you have any harsh people in your life, in your workplace, in your school, in your class, in your family? Do you have any harsh, rude people in your life, badly behaved people? What about those people that you buy Christmas presents for them faithfully every year, but they never buy anything in return, or they buy you rubbish? Here's a powerful lesson. Beware of the fools and the harsh and the badly behaved people in your life. They may just be there to shake you up. Every workplace I go, I'm amazed at the characters. I'm like, God, what are you doing to me? <laughs> Can you not just give me a workplace where everyone's sensible? <laughs> and they're saying the same. They're like, oh, can you not just send us a boss who's sensible? <laughs> but it just reveals what is in us. It really reveals what is in us. And I can assure you, it's ugly. It's ugly what's in us at times. It really is. But here's an example of the war that goes on inside human beings. You know that there's two forces going on inside of every human being. The force of the sinful nature, which wants to do evil. And there's a force for believers or Christians of the Holy Spirit that wants to do good. David, he wanted his sinful nature, he wanted to kill all of the men with 400 men with swords because of an insult. Let me ask you a question. Was that desire within David the force of his sinful nature, or was that the force of the Holy Spirit, the anointing within him? What, was, what won the battle on that occasion? What was winning the battle was the force of his sinful nature. David was allowing the force of his sinful nature to win. And we read about this in Romans chapter 7. It details wonderfully the conflict that is in you and I. And even you and I have been Christian for many years. It expresses beautifully the conflict that you face on a daily basis in your life. In Romans chapter 7. We're not going to read it all. But it says, I'm just going to pick out a few verses in 14 to 25. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself. Anyone say amen to that? I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right. Oh, yes, we want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ our Lord. Third slice, slide, please. Is that how you respond? That's how I want to respond. Shut up, fool. 
Hey, the simple nature, just like, hey, shut up, Phil. Who, who has not seen B.A. Barakas? Who's in the generation that's not actually ever seen B.A. Barakas in the A-team? Oh, we're so, so sorry for you. Stephen, you have to tweet Zara to some A-team videos. Videos, DVDs. <laughs> Netflix or whatever. Um, but we have in David's response highlights the struggle that we all have. It highlights this example of David, highlights the two forces, the conflict that are opposing and opposite to each other within every human being. And even when you become a Christian, one day we do great. We do great under trial. You can be on a high, and that's where you really have to watch yourself when, you're, when you've done well. That's when pride comes in. When you think I'm doing well, if you think you're, you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. The next thing, we end up losing the plot and responding way out of proportion to the way we want to. You maybe think you're not that bad because you've not responded by telling 400 men to strap swords on their sides. That's probably because you haven't got 600 guerrilla fighters at your disposal. But Matthew 5, 21 and 22 says that you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So maybe you've not responded like David and sent 400 men with swords, but have you got angry? Have you ever got angry? Have you ever had anger in your life? Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The words of Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who apparently never talked about hell, actually saying here you will be liable to the hell of fire. We've got to be careful when interpreting passages like that, that we interpret them in light of the whole of Scripture. We know that we're saved by grace, through faith in Christ alone, not by works. So this is not about how to be saved. It's not if I get angry, that means I'm going to experience fire. What Jesus, I think, in context is actually saying is that none of us can achieve the righteousness. The Pharisees thought they had attained righteousness because they weren't murdering. I've, I, I obey that law. That's me. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm righteous. I don't murder people but I'm angry, I'm proud, I'm a whitewashed tomb, Jesus would point out. And so what, we're, what Jesus is pointing out is that our sin is very present and it's very real. But the Bible gives us an answer that your school will not give you, your teacher will not give you, your culture will not give you, and self-help books will not help you, and it's become very unpopular today to talk about. But our problem there is the church that we must stand up and talk about. Our problem in achieving true greatness is sin and our sinful nature. And what destroys greatness is sin. What destroys great teams is sin. What destroys cohesion and success of teams in business is sin. And human nature and character. So when someone does evil to us, when someone is unkind to us or bullies us or mistreats us, how do we respond? We do need wisdom here because if it's in an abusive relationship, if it is being bullied, if it is um, being mistreated, 
then of course we shouldn't keep silent. Of course we should report it, or of course we should get help. I'm not talking about those types of bullying. Bullying is not right, it's wrong, it must be dealt with. So is abusive relationships. But what I'm talking about is day-to-day relationships. Slide number four, please. Do you repay evil for evil? Silent treatment for silent treatment. Harsh words for harsh words. Isolation for isolation. It's particularly true in the household and family relationships, isn't it? But it's also true in businesses with work colleagues. Husbands, do you reply insult for insult with your wife? When you feel insulted or mocked or disrespected or unappreciated, do you let rip with the mouth? Wives, do you repay evil for evil, hurtful for comment for hurtful comment? What about us? Do we take revenge? Of course we don't take revenge. We're, we're Christians. We've just developed a whole sophisticated way of taking revenge that's acceptable. We just don't strap swords on our side, but we do it in different ways. I'll just avoid that person at church. I'll just keep my head down and smile politely. I'll treat them just superficially from now on. I'll just never like one of their Facebook comments on on, on Facebook because they've never liked any of mine. I'll just never invite, never invite them for dinner. I'll never, I'll just try not sit too close to them at church. I'll just not going to text them anymore. I'll just not include them on my texting list or my Christmas gift list. That's all taking revenge. Let's not kid ourselves on. Our hearts are deceitful above all things. And Christ died that we may have overwhelming victory. But radical Christ followers, we have to respond in a different manner. We have to be radically kind, Jesus taught and modeled, even to love our enemies. Now, if he taught us to love our enemies, how much more our husband who offends us? How much more our wife who maybe lets us down or hurts us? How much more a brother and sister in Christ who are struggle with because their personality is different or because their priorities are different or because I'm jealous of them or because this, that, or the next thing. If we have to love our enemies and not take revenge on our enemies, how much more the family of God? How much more someone who has left this church? There's a test. If someone leaves this church, are they an enemy? Or are they a brother and sister in Christ that we have got a difference with? We've got a difference with, they've disagreed with, but people, they're not enemies. And we shouldn't treat them like enemies, and we shouldn't take revenge. We shouldn't be harsh and hard on these people. And that is hard when you feel you've been let down and you've been let betrayed. But they're not enemies. And Jesus taught us to love our enemies, to forgive those who hurt us, to forgive those who insult us, to forgive them. And if we forgive them, we bless them. We go to the next level of being able to pray blessing. That is what the radical followers of Christ do. We pray for blessing on our enemies. How much more even those who have left this church? Do we want them to succeed or do we want them to fail? Do we want them to fail because then we'll say, ah, see, you shouldn't have really left this church and you'll come running back now. Do we want them to fail? No, we don't. And that is where the rubber hits the road is when we are challenged We're challenged by the teaching of Christ. 
to even love our enemies. Jesus said, if they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them a drink. But that's enemies. How much more brothers and sisters in Christ are family members? But I believe that these principles can transform workplaces because I've seen too many workplaces ripped apart by human character, by the mouth, by lack of self-control. The success of any business you know depends on its smartness, its business health, its workforce cohesion, and its interdependent relationships. Business experts will tell you that usually it's not lack of smartness that causes businesses to fail, but it's its lack of organizational health. And you can read a quote on your sheets from The Advantage by Patrick Lencioni. And he says, after two decades of working with CEOs and their teams of senior executives, I've become absolutely convinced that the seminal difference between successful companies and mediocre or unsuccessful ones has little if anything to do with what they know or how smart they are. It has everything to do with how healthy they are. If an organization is led by a team that is not behaviorally unified, there is no chance it will become healthy. It's kind of like a family. If the parent's relationship is dysfunctional, the family will be too. I'm getting ready to uh, just draw this to a close. What destroys organizational health and businesses? Nothing destroys it more than poor team relationships and disunity. And we can see it all through the workplaces. Romans 10, 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Imagine that took place in the workplace. Maybe you're a boss or an employer and someone's just been really out of order and you're just raging, they're disrespecting you. It feels like Nabal, you want to get the swords out. You want to be like B.A. Baracus. <laughs> but what if we actually apply this? What if this teaching actually applies to every area of our life? What if it applies to our children? What if it applies in our businesses? What if it applies in the church? What if it applies even in the church? And the church is not the people that are sitting in this room. It's the international body, the universal church. It's the universal accumulation of the number of believers from different denominations with different beliefs, but the same central truths of the, the gospel. Proverbs fifteen eighteen says, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict. Does anybody know? Hands up if you know a hot-tempered person. Oh my goodness, do they stir up conflict or what? Unbelievable. Oh, they're so, they're so tiring. They're so tiring. They're the worst people to work with. Honestly, you know that. They're the worst. Oh, oh my. I'm, I better stop talking because this can't put this on the internet. But I can be a hot-tempered person sometimes. I can and I, I kind of feel like, David, I do well for like 300 days of the year. And then the 301st, I've maybe had a rough night or something. And it's just something small and like, whoa. <laughs> People get surprised. I don't get swords out or anything. Like but the one who is patient or slow to anger calms a quarrel. James 1.19, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Imagine that took place in the workplace, slow to speak. 
slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry. Imagine I applied those simple truths in the household. Imagine I applied those simple truths at work. John Stott says, God wants his people to become like Christ, for Christ's likeness is the will of God for the people of God. The question is, how do we get, um, how, do we, how do we become like that? I'm just going to draw this to a close. Um, next, next slide, please. Um, you read the passage like 1 Samuel 25, and you say, well, what's the lesson? The lesson is, well, I've just got to watch out for fools. Or I've just got to be careful of my temper. Or I just need to get self-control. And we stop and say, okay, we've learned the lesson. I'll need to watch out for that good. That was a good Bible study. But they can be described as synagogue sermons. The fact that Jesus Christ has died and raised from the dead makes no difference to the application of the message. What difference, if we're going to have a Christ-centered message, what difference does it make to this passage that Christ has died and risen and he has sent his spirit upon all true believers? Here's the difference. Romans 7 describes the frustration of trying to live the Christian life under the old covenant. And it would take a really good study to be able to, to, to prove that or to um, describe or explain that. But Romans 7 is explaining the frustration of trying to live a good life by effort. It, it explains what it's like Paul coming from Judaism into Christianity in the transition period, trying to obey the requirements of the law in the human flesh. What is the answer? The answer is we have this sinful nature. We have a force inside us that causes us to desire to do wrong. We need an opposing force a stronger force, a force that will overtake, a force that will silence, a force that will keep that in check and it will keep it in control. And what is that, that force? It's the force that only true believers in Jesus Christ can have. And so our message is foolishness to the world because they can't do it. They can't keep their temper. They can't forgive others. I, I've, I've sat with people say, you just need to forgive. And our workplace is going to be happy. Uh, our, we're going to have a happy workplace. You just need to forgive. The, forgive? Why would I forgive? I'm like, well, because Jesus Christ died and he forgave all our sins. And Well, you don't believe that. Oh, I can't. Well, you're, you're right. You shouldn't really forgive them. You're right under your, oh, well. Just be silent. Just stay away from each other, right? Don't, don't, don't fight. Just keep, just keep things. Just allow that bitterness to not eat away at you too much. You know, just all the best. But the, the, the answer, I believe, is Romans 8. The answer to the frustration of Romans 7, because it doesn't offer much hope if I keep on doing with it that which I don't want to do. Is that the the message that we have for Christians? No. The message is that we can have victory. We can start, stop doing the things that we don't want to do. We can start doing the things that we ought to do, but are, are struggling to do. Where is a power that is available? And Romans 8, you count how many times Romans 8 mentions the Holy Spirit and talks about the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh or the sinful nature. Walk 
the key is to learn to walk on the Spirit, live in the Spirit, keep in step with the Holy Spirit, not to quench the Holy Spirit, to live in relationship with the Holy Spirit, to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, to ask for the Holy Spirit, to receive the Holy Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. And we want a formula for that, but there's no real formula to relationship. You don't get a formula or 10 keys to successful marriage when you enter the marriage covenant. And when we enter relationship with the Father, His keys are, John 15, abide in me and remain in me, and you will bear much fruit. It's about a living relationship. It's about connection to the healthy, life-giving sap of the Holy Spirit. And we do that through practices. We do that through meeting together. We do that through worship. We do it through the example of what Isaac said he heard his mother doing day in and day out on Mother's Day. He says, my mom would just go on her knees and would sing and worship. And sing and worship. And our homes filled with worship. Connecting, being full of the Holy Spirit. Living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Last slide. We need to pull in the oars and put up the sail. Lindsay, if you could come up, let's stand to our feet. Um, I had a dream last night. I've been getting a lot of clear dreams, and God told me to start writing them down because it's like if you want to keep getting them, write them down because I'm speaking to you, I'm communicating to you, and I'm going to give you the interpretation of them, but you need to write them down. But I believe one of them was we need to pull in the oars and put up the sail. Romans 7 is trying to achieve Romans 7 is trying to achieve obedience to the law by human effort. And we get weary, we get tired, we're trying to cross the shore, we're trying to reach the destination by human effort. And all the time we've got a sail tucked in our boat, and the wind is blowing, the ruach of the Spirit is blowing, the breath of the Spirit wants to take the sail and to blow and to help and to empower and to move that boat across the water. We need to pull in the oars, and we need to put up the sail. The Holy Spirit is blowing. Just give us two or three minutes, band, and then maybe I should start playing just, just two or three minutes. Let's just close our eyes. I'm going to pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Jesus Christ, that you died upon that cross. We thank you that when you died, you said overwhelming victory is ours. When you died, that you gave us victory over sin and temptation. Lord, that you said that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. But it's through Christ, it's through faith, it's in relationship with you. So Holy Spirit, I just ask you right now. And if you want a fresh and filling of the Holy Spirit, people, we must live in the Spirit. We must walk in the Spirit every single day of our lives because we are prone like David to be doing well and then just to mess up, just to blow it. But we can only way that we can, uh, uh, that Romans 7, we don't want that to be our experience, our ongoing experience where we just keep experiencing failure. I just can't do the things I want to do. I just can't stop doing that which is displeasing to God. That's not the final say. The final say that Christ died 
He's, he's, he made it possible through the blood of Jesus that for me to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And greater is he who lives in me than he who lives in the world. Greater is the power of the Spirit within you than the power of the sinful nature. But we need to keep up the sail. We need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. We need to be careful that we're not quenching the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we just ask in Jesus' name. Come now, just lift your hands and just say, Holy Spirit, I need you. I confess apart from you, I can do nothing. I confess I want more of your power. Dear Father, would you fill me right now with the power of your Spirit, Lord? I confess, Lord, that I do not have love. Very often I, I have desires for revenge. I have desires, Lord, I have wrong thoughts towards brothers and sisters and even my enemies. But Holy Spirit, I pray that your love would come and you would form within me the fruit of love and the fruit of love would grow and multiply in my life. Lord Jesus, I confess that many times my emotions are dark. Many times my emotions are dull. Many times I am sad and I don't know why it is. Well, Lord Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill me now and you would form and multiply the fruit of joy in my life that I would put on a garment of praise and I would receive the spirit of joy. Father, fill me now. I declare joy is coming into my life by the power of the Spirit, Lord. Not by might, not by power but by my spirit your joy is rising up within me lord so i receive your joy and i receive your power in jesus name lord i confess that many times i'm anxious i'm afraid lord i'm worried about my children i'm worried about my finance i'm worried about my job i'm worried about my future there's so many that are worried about terrorism and our nation and my pension pot that's empty i'm worried about so many things lord jesus but i pray the holy spirit that you would fill me right now with the fruit of peace and that the fruit of peace would grow and multiply and increase in my life. Let your shalom, your peace fill your children today. Just receive his peace in Jesus' name. Lord, I confess that many times I'm stingy. Lord, many times, Lord, I'm not kind. I'm not generous. I'm not generous with my time, my talents, and my money. And I pray and ask that your Holy Spirit would come and you would fill me with kindness and let the fruit of kindness grow and increase and multiply in my life, Lord, that you would make me a generous person with my mouth, generous with encouragement, generous with serving, and generous with my finances. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray you would let the fruit of goodness, Lord, rise up, Lord, that I would be a person of goodness, Lord. Father, I confess that many times I struggle, Lord, with harshness, Lord. I struggle with jealousy, Lord. I struggle with, um, Lord, harsh words and harsh attitudes and hardness of heart. And I pray and ask, Holy Spirit, you would come right now and you would fill me and fill your church, Lord Jesus, with the spirit of gentleness. And that the fruit of gentleness, Lord, would grow and multiply and increase in our lives, Lord. Holy Spirit, come. Come in this place right now. Holy Spirit, fill up your church. Fill up your people, Lord. Take us back, Lord, to the place of victory, Lord. Take us back to the place of, Lord Jesus, walking in your spirit, keeping in step with the spirit, living in your spirit, Father. We ask in Jesus' mighty name. And Lord, I confess that many times, Lord, I lose control. I can't control my tongue. I can't control the things that I say. I can't control my temper. 
I can't control my anger. I can't control my thoughts. I can't control my mind. I can't control my sinful nature. I can't control my evil desires. Holy Spirit, I pray for more of your power. I pray that I would be responsive and sensitive to your Holy Spirit and the fruit of self-control would grow. The fruit of self-control would grow and multiply and increase in my life. To your name, Lord. Just ask the band to start playing. Let your church, Lord, you've called, you created us in your image, Lord. You created us in your image, the image of greatness, the image of glory and beauty, the image of light. You created us in that image, Lord. But all of us have fallen short of that glory, Lord. We've fallen short. But Lord Jesus, you died in order, Lord, that we may be brought back into that image and that greatness, Lord Jesus. That we may achieve greatness, Lord, of the gifts that you have given us. And in character, Lord, that we would achieve greatness, not only, Lord, in our area of gifting, but we'd achieve greatness as fathers, as husbands, as friends, as brothers and sisters, Lord. We would achieve greatness, Lord. So we ask in Jesus' name that your power come, that your spirit come, and teach us, Lord, to walk in your spirit. Let's sing this song together. Lindsay, just uh, take us away in a song of worship. I'll just sing the last song again. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Sure. 